This is our end, our, the fourth study that we have in the book of Philippians in our uh, line by line, verse by verse, in-depth study of the book. And we're going to look at what Paul meant. It's the passage, and right in the heart of it is Paul saying, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And it's so heartfelt for him. He's been in prison in Caesarea by the sea in Israel for a couple of years, and now he's in Rome, and he, he's in prison in Rome, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, but he's thinking about the end of his life. He's in his 60s at this point, as near as we can tell, and he's thinking about the end of his life and being in prison. I think he just thinks, you know, maybe I'll just go. Maybe I'll just kind of wrap things up here and, um, and go, and we'll talk about you know, him saying, you know, what I'm going to do, I don't know yet, which I don't know that we all have that much choice about, well, whether or not when we're going to die, but he does say that. Now, the city of Philippi is in northern Greece. Just a few little pointers on the city of Philippi. I want to kind of fill this in every few studies, uh, but the city of Philippi is in northern Greece. It was named after Alexander the Great's father, Philip of Macedonia. Uh, Paul preached the first, uh, the very first time on European soil at Philippi, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 16. Philippi was a city of little commerce and little resources, and it was not a wealthy area. And yet they supported Paul. They were one of the only churches, Paul says, that supported him during that time. And so Paul is moved, really, by their generosity when they are not nearly as wealthy as some of the other churches like that Corinth, which were right in the middle of the shipping area. Um, uh, Paul established a small but caring church there that supported him on future endeavors. Um, and the church also fell into intense persecution. He'll speak a little bit about that in the study that we have today. But that's important for us to understand as he writes this letter of joy to the Philippians because they are their lives are being taken from them. They are challenged as to whether or not they're going to continue to live themselves. And so Paul feels really strong as he shares these things with them. Uh, Paul was the, uh, wrote this letter while he was in prison in Rome. You can read about his, his trip to Rome and his imprisonment in the last chapter, chapter 28 of the book of Acts. And when he gets to Rome, he is handed over to the guard of Nero himself and he's able to get a house, but he's got a guard that is with him 24-7. And um, as he writes this letter, uh, it, is, um, it's, it, it is on his mind that he is in prison. Um, at this point, Paul is talking about what's happening to himself, and he makes a transition. So we've had four studies so far, and we saw that Paul got to the point, talks to them, encourages them first, and then he gets to the point where he talks about him being in prison because they would want to know, how are you doing? And so we started our study last week with Paul saying, the things that have happened to me have happened for the furtherance of the gospel. And I want you to know that. So he talked about his past, what had happened to him and how that was working in his life. But now he transitions and he talks about his future. What does this mean, the things that have happened to him, mean now for his future? So that's what he begins to speak of here. And we pick that up in verse 19 of Philippians chapter 1, where he says this, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance, that he will be delivered from prison through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit in Christ Jesus. 
So he talks about his deliverance in two different things. First of all, by their prayer. Paul believed in prayer. He would write his letters and he would let almost, in every letter, he speaks about praying for them daily. He believed that prayer changed things. And I believe that prayer changes things too. I, I believe that when we pray for things that are God's will, we get the answer for those things. The key is to find the things that we pray for that are the desires because we delight ourselves in God. He gives us the desires of our heart. We're praying for the right things. And so praying for someone that is in a really difficult situation is extremely powerful. And Paul knew that. And so Paul says, your prayers are going to result in the deliverance. And then he knows through the supply of the Spirit in Jesus Christ that as they pray, God through his Spirit is going to move and is going to deliver him. Now let's talk a little bit about what he means by deliverance. Because what we learn as we continue on here that he sees two types of deliverance. Number one, that he could be found guilty by Nero and he could be killed. Number two, that he could be let go. And as far as we understand it, those were the only two options really for Paul. He would not be held in prison forever. He's either going to be killed by Nero. Spoiler alert, he eventually is. There's some who believe that he is released for a short amount of time and then rearrested, brought back before Nero and condemned to death and beheaded in Rome. Others believe that he was not let go, that he, maybe he stood before Nero a couple of times, but that he wasn't let go in between it, that Nero just kept him in prison then had him come before him a second time. We don't really know that for sure. But when Paul talks about deliverance, we know he's talking about either being delivered and going to heaven or delivered and, and being able to go and continue on ministering. And what I love about Paul as he talks about this is that he really doesn't care. Paul's like, for me to be delivered and to be in the presence of Christ is better for me. But for me not to be delivered and continue to minister for you is better for you. What a true reflection for us as Christians that if something happens to us this year or, the, or, or next year, and we find ourselves contemplating whether we will go into the presence of God, that we would know it will be better for us. But for the people that are behind, it's better for them. And that's really what Paul dives into. He's, he goes on in verse 20. He says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. So Paul wants to finish the race well. And that's not shocking to us. He doesn't want he doesn't want it, even in the, the prison experience to be ashamed of anything that he does or says, but he wants to finish the race well. In the final letter that he writes in, uh, of 2 Timothy, he talks about running the race well and finishing the race well, and he wants to do that. But he has this expectation and this hope that in nothing he would be ashamed. As he looks to his future, that he, he, he believes that God will work in him and he has that hope that he will not be ashamed. Then he says, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body. So that whatever happens to him, that Jesus would be magnified and be glorified no matter what. Which is the purpose that we're here. We want God to be uplifted. We want God to be glorified. We want people to meet him and to learn how wonderful he is. And Paul knew that while he was at this prison experience. So he says that he wants Christ to be magnified in his body. Then he, then he gives this ultimatum to himself, whether by life or by death. 
I want, to, I want him to be glorified if I live or if I don't. And then he gives us his attitude and his heart towards it. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. As we're going to see that Paul's leaning towards wanting to go. He's like, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain and to go and be in the presence of the Lord, how powerful that would be. Now let's think about what Paul's thinking about. He's thinking about two things. He's thinking about heaven, the place. He's thinking about what he's going to be like in heaven with Christ, with God. And he, those two things. So let's take a moment and think about what the Bible has to say about heaven. It actually says a lot. It gives descriptions. It tells us that the gates into heaven are pearly gates, giant pearls, which would speak of agitation. You get a, you get a little piece of sand in an oyster and it irritates it and it makes a pearl. Coats it to make it feel better and it makes a pearl. So we enter into heaven through agitation. Anybody feel that way? Amen, you know? It's like we're, we're making, you know, we, we understand that. It talks about the streets being of gold. Now, again, I don't know if there's literal pearly gates or if these just represent things. I don't know if there's literal golden streets. I kind of want there to be in, the, in, the, in this city in heaven. But it would tell us that the thing that men will kill for here is what they're walking on in heaven. They pave their streets with what people covet here. It tells us that the walls are transparent which would speak to us of no need for any privacy. That's what it speaks to me about right away. It's like right away I think, but I want some walls that are not transparent. Of course, I'm thinking very earthly, right? I'm thinking of the bathroom, but we aren't going to have bathrooms up in heaven. And so I don't think we'll have the need for the privacy that we have here. I also think that we move out of time and into eternity I think that God created the space, time, matter, continuum. And we know that they are all interconnected. And God lives outside of time. And I believe that we'll be going outside of time as well. So those are the things that the Bible describes. But maybe the best definition that we get of heaven is what's not there. Listen to what it says in Revelation 21, verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, no sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no pain, for the former things have passed away. What is not there is the way that that describes what heaven is. The second thing the Bible tells us about heaven is that it is a place where Jesus is and that he comes and gets us and brings us back to where he is. This is in John 14, verse 3. And this is this great passage where Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then he says this, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. The big thing there is not necessarily the place. You know, Keith Green said, God made the earth in six days and has been working on your mansion for 2,000 years. So you can imagine what that mansion is, is going to be like. But the passage really isn't so much about the mansion. In fact, I hate to break it to you, but the Greek word here, prepare a place for you, that's translated mansion in some translations, isn't really mansion. It's really more like a room. You're like, do I get an apartment in heaven? Is that what, you know? And if you're not, not a very good Christian, you get a small apartment. You're a better Christian, you get a bigger apartment. The, the real key is that Jesus says, where I am, there you will be also. We will be with 
Christ. The third thing the Bible teaches us about heaven is that we really can't comprehend what it's like. And I think there's a desire for us to comprehend it. And one of the reasons that we are so interested when someone dies and, and or someone has a dream and they go to heaven and they come back and they write a book and people buy those books and they'll ask me, what do I think about them? My response is always the same. I don't know what I think about them because I never read them because I don't trust them. I, I'll, I'll explain that. First uh, Corinthians 2.9 says, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love us. It goes on to say, but the Spirit of God is revealing it. So God is in the process of revealing what He has prepared for those of us who love Him, but there are still things that we just cannot comprehend. And it's one of the reasons that I think that Paul, when he had his experience, so Paul is in the area of Lystra or Derby. At least this is the closest we think we can get to what happened. He is, he is with Silas. They declare them to be Greek gods. And, and Paul stops them. We're not gods. And they turn on him. And they, they stone him. And they drag him outside of the city. And they leave him for dead. Paul had a lot of suffering being stoned to where he passes out and looks dead is one of them. Some believe that he actually died and that in 2 Corinthians, he's writing about that. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 through 4. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I don't know. So he's saying, I know a man, he's talking about himself, this in the context, it becomes extremely evident he's talking about himself. The clip I'm reading, not so much, but in context, it does. And this is the way he's referring to it. And he says, I don't know if I was dead or alive. I just don't know. He doesn't know if he died and God brought him back to life or if he just came really close to death. And this was the experience that he had. He said, such a one was caught up into the third heaven. We would say that the the, where birds fly is the first heaven, where the stars are is the second heaven, where God is would be the third heaven. So he's caught up into the third heaven. And I, and I knew such a man, and then he says again, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. He didn't want to make claims that weren't true. So he just says, I, I don't know. He says how he was caught up into paradise, which is the same phrase that is used for Jesus saying to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. He was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it's not lawful for a man to utter. He heard things when he was up in heaven that was unlawful. And he didn't write a letter or a book telling us what he saw. I heard Skip Heidzik say one time that he was really upset at Paul for not doing that that he has a little bit of heartburn towards him, that he couldn't sit down and write the things that he could write down about heaven. But I think it's so splendid, it's so spectacular, it's so beyond anything that we can imagine that writing about it is just, there's no words to really tell us what heaven is going to be like. We are so connected to the earth that when we think about eternity, it's hard for us not to, to think of it related to the earth. I believe we do the same thing about hell. I've been threatening to do a study on hell for a couple of years now. I think I got a spot picked out in the book of Luke where we're going to be able to get to this. But 
we do the, I think we do the same thing there where we take things here on the earth that are allegories and we connect it to there as well. And by the way, hell's not a good place. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not an annihilationist. I'm not a, um, a universalist. All right. So just, just so you guys know, I do believe that, that we fall back on like the Dante Inferno kind of thing too much. And we'll get into that at another point. We're talking about heaven now, not hell, Robert. Keep your focus. So the fourth thing the Bible tells us about hell, and this comes from, we just heard that. I, I was taken up into paradise, but it comes from Jesus talk, calling heaven paradise. Jesus said this to the thief on the cross. Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise, which is a deathbed experience, by the way. He, at the very end of his life, just asked Jesus to remember him and he promises him eternity. But it's a paradise. The fifth thing the Bible tells us is that we are citizens right now. We are citizens of heaven, not citizens on earth. We are like, we're like Abraham who was looking for a city whose foundations were built by God. He didn't go live in any city because he was looking for a city whose foundations were built by God. And so there's two verses. One is Hebrews 13, verse 14, where it says, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one that is to come. And then in Philippians 3.20, it says, for our citizenship is in heaven. In the same book we're studying now, just three chapters later, our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies that it may be conformed to his glorious body. He's talking about the rapture of the church, the day when Jesus comes back for us in the clouds and we are caught up together with him. The dead in Christ rise first. It's a resurrection. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, behold, I tell you a mystery. This is why there's so much you know, debate over the rapture. It's a mystery. We will not all sleep. By that he meant die. But some of us are going to be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. This helps us to understand that Paul's also thinking about the intermediate state, what we call today the intermediate state. Paul wouldn't have called it that, but we do. I'll talk more about that in just a moment. So he says, um, the body's being conformed to his glorious body, so we will be like Christ, who would show up in a room when the doors and windows were locked, who, well, uh, so many things we could talk about that are like that. And then he says, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. So we are, we're sojourners here on earth. We get too connected to the things of this world. In the book of James, we're told that if we love the world more than we love God, that we are an adulterer and adulteress. That's the, the, an analogy to speak of how important it is for us not to be too connected to this world, not to be too in love with this world. And quite frankly, we see it clearly in the passage that we're studying today with Paul. We see that Paul is not connected to the world. That for him would even prefer to go up and, and, and to be in heaven. Now, we talked about what heaven is like, but let's talk about the intermediate state. When uh, Lisa, who passed away in 2012, so almost 10 years ago now, nine years ago, I guess, in, in this December, uh, my late wife, um, when she had finally kind of just realized that God was taking her home, 
God delivered her by taking her to be with him instead of delivering her from cancer. It's interesting to me, her mom, who's now 90 years old, had a biopsy done. They found something in one of her lungs that a biopsy done and it came back as lung cancer. We prayed for her. We anointed her for oil. We prayed for her. Other people were praying for her. They went in, they took out the lobe because it wasn't, it was, I think, stage, maybe stage two, maybe one other lymph node. So they go in to get the lobe and they, there was no cancer in it. After a biopsy, she had no cancer in it. This is a, the, the doctors were just like, I don't know. Here's what the doctor said to her. I don't know. Things like this happen. Well, that's interesting. We don't ever hear that very often, do we? Things like this happen where they do a biopsy and it's cancer and they take out the lobe and the cancer's gone. So God, for her mother, delivered her by taking care of the cancer, by removing the cancer. And Lisa came to the point of realizing that she was going to be delivered by being taken up into heaven. The closer that she got to being with the Lord, the more mindful she got of heaven. The last woman's retreat that she did here at the church was on heaven. And there was a little mock-up that they had of what the stage was like. And she had it right, set right next to where her hospital bed was in the house. And in the days before she died, I don't know what was happening with the tumors that were growing, but it was causing her to kind of like, just kind of lean over to one to the right. And she was leaning more towards heaven, towards the picture of heaven as, as, as she did that. But um, she, a couple of weeks before she died, she had told me she realized God's taking me home. God's delivering me by taking me home. And um, Skip was here teaching for me, Skip Heitzig. And a lot of my friends that came out, even while I was in town, just going through that, that came and taught while I was there. Gino Geraci was teaching the weekend that she died here. And um, she said to me, can you have Skip come by the hospital? And I said, yeah, I'm sure he will. I'll, I'll call him. How come? She goes, well, I got some questions about heaven to ask him. And I was like, you want to you pass them by me? She's like, no, I'll wait. I'll wait for Skip. All right. All right. But our main conversation when Skip came in was on the intermediate state. She was concerned. Am I, just, am I going to heaven and just going to be a spirit? Am I going to not have a body? What does the Bible say? And so we talked about it. And Paul, as he talks about the experience of being caught up into heaven, as he talks about this, is, is confident. And, and Paul is the one who answers this question, by the way, when he talks about a tent. He calls this body a tent. So we have a tent that's wearing out over time. Doesn't look as good as it used to look. Will not never look as good as it used to look until it's renewed. But in between, we have a home or a tent. Some translations say a building made by God so that we are not going to be without a home or without a tent. So we are going to have a temporary body while we're in heaven, while we're waiting for the resurrected bodies that we know that we're going to, we will have this body forever, but it will be glorified. All right. You'd be like, I wish I would have died when I was younger if I'm going to have this body forever. No, it's glorified body. All right. But it is that body that's been transformed. So first of all, there's no soul sleep in heaven. So there's a group of Christians who believe that when you die, you just take a nap and you wake up when everybody's in heaven. 
So it doesn't matter if what time you get there or what's going to happen. You just kind of go to sleep and you wake up. Everybody's going to wake up at the same time. Uh, and they, they believe this because the Bible in a few places talks about Christians when they die sleeping. But that's because you close your eyes here or, or you, you know, you die here and you wake up in, in the presence of God. You're still alive. You're not dead. And so it's proper to talk about Christians sleeping their, their bodies are here, but they're sleeping and will one day be awakened. So there's no soul sleep. And uh, the intermediate state, we do have some kind of a temporary body, something like a tent. And when we enter into his presence, there's, well, listen to what it says in Psalm 1611. And you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, is pleasures forevermore. In your presence is fullness of joy. Now, we're so used to thinking about the way that we think, chemicals in the brain that make you feel a certain way, and happiness and joy are, are just two different things. Happiness is connected to circumstances. Something happens, you get a big refund from, on your taxes, and you're happy. And then, you know, your air conditioner breaks down, you got to buy a new one, and now you're sad. But joy is connected to something much deeper so that Paul in prison could have this joy and Paul could be talking to a church in Philippi, which is in Rome, being persecuted by Romans and talk about them having joy, even though family members have been arrested, beaten, and killed. Still, there's a deep abiding joy that is down inside of us. And in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. So he goes on then in 22. And then that, that kind of um, the, where he says, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. The gain would be heaven. The gain would be being in the presence of God. The gain would be having the fullness of joy that is there. So then he says in verse 22, but if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Now he begins to calculate the two as if he's got a choice. And I'll be honest with you, as I'm studying this, I'm trying to figure out, does he have a choice? Could, is he thinking, you know, I could just insult Nero when I get up there. He'll take off my head. I, I could very easily make this happen by just, you know, the way I respond. Or is he just thinking about what he wants to happen? Is he saying, hey, look, I got to figure out what I want. If I live here, it means fruit for my labor. That while we're here, we have an opportunity to be able to do things for eternity, for people. This would speak even more importantly of, of us living for Christ, wanting our lives to shine for Him, wanting to take opportunities to people to see Christ in us and to share Christ with them. And then he says, yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. And there's the part that you go, what do you mean what you will choose, you cannot tell? I mean, is God maybe giving him a, you know, Paul, you want to stay here? You can. You want to go? You can. I don't know. I don't think this is a normal thing. Or, or if he's writing it in a way where he's just thinking this through, what I will choose, I cannot tell, for I am hard pressed between the two. I'm having a really difficult time. If we found out that there's a possibility that we could die within a couple of weeks, 
I wonder if we would be like, uh, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I, I kind of want to stay and I kind of want to go. I, I think we go, I want to live, right? I want to be here with family and friends. But Paul understood that, well, you, you'll hear what he says here in a moment. So he says, I'm hard pressed between two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. So this is why he has the problem. And when, when I finally go and be with the Lord, don't be sad for me. Don't feel sorry for me. Let's put it that way. Don't feel sorry for me. You can feel sorry for me if I get sick and have a lot of pain here. Feel sorry for me then. I'm fine with that. But when I'm in heaven, don't feel sorry for me. I, I hope you miss me a little bit. <laughs> but that's really how we ought to be thinking about anyone that goes into the presence of God. And understand, we understand that there's deep grief that happens. You, you can't avoid that. But nevertheless, as we consider, as, as we come to the point in our life, and I'm, I'm still voting for Jesus coming back for us all, by the way. I'm voting for Jesus coming back pretty soon and we all just meet him in the air. But as we come to the place near the end of our lives, this, this passage is a great passage for us to reflect upon. For to be with Christ is far better than being here. I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And that's really the struggle that you have. As Lisa got to near the end of her life, when, when she was still mobile, I would ask her, what do you want to do tonight? And she would say, I want to go over and see Evan. Evan was born on October 15th. She passed away on December 15th, two months later. And she would say, I want to go over and see Evan. Just what she wanted to do. She knew it was going to be hard for us when she was gone. So it would be better for us if she stayed. But she had her mind on heaven as well. And Paul has the same thing. He's concerned about them. This church, which he really loves, that cares for him, that is one of the only churches out of all of them that he planted that are providing for his needs while he's in prison. He says, and being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. So it's almost like he's worked through this now. He's confident, he says. I'm confident of this. I know that I shall remain with you and continue with you in your progress of joy. He speaks now of their joy. He spoke of his joy earlier. Now he speaks of their joy. They're a persecuted church. They're facing hardships that are unfathomable. If you could imagine that at our church, there, we, we were being persecuted where people were being arrested, people were being killed, people were being beaten and released. And he speaks of their joy. He says, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Now, whether or not he was able to go with them again, we know that Paul at least went to Philippi twice. He had three missionary journeys. The first one was kind of a small area up into the middle of Turkey. The second he went over into Europe where he established Philippi and um, the church in Corinth and then back over into Turkey, into Ephesus. And then the third one, he made his way all the way back around again. And of course, then found himself in Rome where he was arrested, or found himself in Jerusalem where he was arrested and sent back to Rome. So whether or not God allowed him to be able 
to make that trip again is just something we do not know. In closing, we consider that happiness is something temporary and connected to our circumstances, but joy is something deeper and not connected to our circumstances at all. That even in the midst of unhappy times, we can have joy. And at this, I think of tomorrow. So here we are, Thanksgiving tomorrow. You may have something going on that is affecting your happiness. But there is still a, a joy to be thankful for. This is why Paul can have joy in a Roman jail. Because it's not the circumstances that he's in. And remembering that in God's presence, I misspelled presence, by the way. I'm looking at my notes. What am I trying to say there? In God's presence is fullness of joy. And so that either way, we are on our way to having, we have joy here, but we will have a fullness of joy that is with God in His presence. And may this be something that we remember as we approach that time in our lives when we go to be with the Lord. And when loved ones who we, know, who we love go to be with the Lord, that we would remember it as well. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much as we have considered here tonight heaven, as we consider the intermediate state, being with you, what it's going to be like. And Lord, help us that we are not too attached to this world, attached to family, friends here, the brothers and sisters in Christ. Yes. Help us to be more attached so that in the day that you do call us home, what we miss is them. But help us to know that our citizenship is in heaven. We are citizens of heaven. We're aliens here. We're pilgrims. We're sojourners. We're passing through. Thank you that you have given us this passage by Paul as he reflects the heart of a spiritual man on eternity and being close to going home. And I pray that that would minister to those that may be facing that in their lives today. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.